Welcome to Stiefel's Investment Strategy Brief, a monthly recap of the macroeconomic and market environment. Well, greetings and welcome to the June 2023 Investment Strategy Brief podcast. This is Michael O'Keefe, Stiefel's Chief Investment Officer. In this episode, we decided to give it a title of a new bull market. So we've made our way through uh, kind of the challenges uh, in a way of the quote-unquote bear market. And these are all sort of technical definitions. And uh, and we're, uh, you know, seeing markets go higher, but with a lot of risks still in the system and uh, a, a lot to talk about as it relates to the environment, uh, what we're facing, and uh, what that might mean for markets. So again, uh, welcome to this episode. We're going to get into a few things, and I want to kind of set it up. Think of it as a number of uh, topics where we'll go a little bit rapid fire just to kind of capture a lot of what's going on. And where I want to start is really the post-pandemic environment. And so if we think about what happened with the pandemic, the economy was shut down, and basically through monetary policy, fiscal spending, there was just this big injection of liquidity and, and essentially money uh, into the system to help the economy recover. So we've seen the money supply you really explode relative to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, the Fed's balance sheet uh, go way up. And, uh, and, and while they, they've started uh, uh, essentially quantitative tightening, which is a slow reduction in the balance sheet, the banking troubles caused them to inject a bit more uh, liquidity out there. We've seen uh, for a while, and that, that, by the way, created sort of excess demand. All that liquidity is creating excess demand. There was excess savings. It's still there, but being spent down a little bit. And then on the supply side, we all know that there were supply chain pressures. All of that led to, on one hand, an economy um, that, generally speaking, has been in recovery, uh, from the the essentially the the negative uh, effect of the shutdown of the economy, uh, but with a lot of uncertainty looking forward, and again we have sort of formally moved into what uh, people would call the next bull market cycle. So anyway, that sort of excess demand and constrained supply, we know that that led to elevated inflation, and the Fed has been very active to increase interest rates. Uh, and essentially with a goal of uh, getting inflation back down to its 2% uh, annualized target. Now, what they pointed out is a lot of areas, a lot of parts of the uh, inflation indices have calmed down, but certain components are sticky. So we've been talking and writing about that uh, recently. Um, and what, what we've teased out is the following idea. Let's kind of make three points. The first is shelter is one that's been in focus. Shelter has been... Uh, you know, think of it as rents and things like the cost of living in a house. Basically, that has that inflation component has been elevated, uh, but but the way that they track that data essentially uh, takes time for the uh, current prices to make their way into the indices because they're doing it via surveys and things like that. The punchline is when we look at real time data. For example, Zillow uh, produces a rent index. Uh, essentially, we're seeing the uh, prices come down, which is really good. A second uh, component is similar to that, used cars and trucks that really got uh, sort of uh, in great demand in the reopening. That demand bid up uh, prices on used cars and trucks. And what we've seen is, a, is sort of a, re- a reversal in that. And, uh, and the bottom line is it kind of comes and goes, but think of it as, uh, an- again, another real-time index, one that's called the Mannheim uh, U.S. Used Vehicle Value Index, 
essentially is showing uh, data coming down. And so, so think of it as two components that are sticky, but where they're there's a lag effect in terms of real-time data getting into the indices and the real-time data looks better. Even with that though, I'll say that the producer price index, PPI, if we look back over the last number of months really, um, that index has been well-behaved and and, uh, when we look at the monthly data, it's sort of running at a level at or below the equivalent of the Fed's 2% target. For CPI, it's gotten close uh, and, and in this last uh, print for the month of May, it actually got really close. I think the monthly was up 0.2 and the annualized monthly number is 0.17. So just think of it as the, the headline indices kind of coming down, uh, but still some work to do um, uh, in inflation. Now, the Fed's also watching jobs. We've seen a, um, a, a sort of a somewhat of a loosening. So things like job openings falling, uh, non-farm payrolls uh, falling a little bit uh, compared to, let's say, a year ago or so, uh, and then wage growth uh, kind of coming down, jobless claims going up. But as it relates to sort of the the number of jobs and wage growth, they're still a, a, at levels above where the Fed wants to see it, and that means the Fed stay, is staying uh, focused on, a, on a, 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 a more of a hawkish stance. They've got a tight policy in place, they're, they skipped their last um, hike, if you will, in terms of the last meeting, but they're signaling, hey, they very well could do more. Uh, and the market is sort of signaling right now the potential for another quarter point hike. In the Fed zone dot, or, yeah, dot plot and what's called the SEP, SEP, the Summary of Economic Projections, those are two things that kind of signal what the Fed's uh, officials are saying. And they're basically saying two more hikes, but they're really saying, hey, we're going to watch the data closely and see where things go. So again, I think Fed policy will continue to be a, uh, a source of focus uh, and, uh, and, and in a way a source of risk. Now, higher rates basically has created a lot of challenges. Some are pretty apparent, others are sort of more hidden. So you take, for example, the bank troubles with some banks failing, that was definitely related to and triggered by higher interest rates. We know, for example, the cost of debt, so whether it's credit cards, auto loans, adjustable rate mortgages, or on the business side, floating rate loans, um, and, and other ways that businesses <clears throat> sort of use credit. Basically, with higher rates, we're seeing the cost of credit go up, uh, and that means that things are slowing down, and in some ways, it's presenting troubles. So we know for sure that the, um, that the bank's uh, failures that we saw, those, that's sort of the ultimate example of trouble, but essentially it's harder to run a business if you're borrowing money and rates are higher. And so businesses that are weaker, that's going to become a bit more apparent in these types of environments. Now, as it relates to the banking system, you know, when when you see some banks fail, the greatest focus is, is this a systemic situation? Is it going to sort of spread around to all the banks? And so what happens in that kind of environment is typically the federal uh, agencies, you know, different organizations basically step in provide liquidity. For example, the Fed did that. And they also may uh, sort of focus in on uh, how the banks are doing in terms of uh, sort of their, uh, the strength of their uh, financial circumstance and maybe require some higher standards, that kind of thing. And the bottom line is, uh, is that uh, while while it was troubling to see these uh, banks fail, uh, the Fed Fed stepped in and made uh, depositors whole and put in place liquidity um, uh, arrangements, sort of borrowing arrangements that 
helped other banks from uh, getting into trouble. So we're not quite out of the woods, but the the Fed uh, essentially monitors the environment carefully and as continues to signal, and I will quote it, uh, quote, the U.S. banking system is sound and resilient, end quote. And so, uh, again, we're uh, mindful that other troubles may appear, but generally speaking, we don't see, and the consensus view is that it's not systemic. Now, on the consumer side, we've seen an, an elevated consumer activity, generally speaking, but that level of that is declining. Recall I mentioned that there is excess savings in the pockets of consumers, um, and that's driven to a very good degree by the uh, the pandemic support that was uh, d- distributed, if you will, by the federal government. Um, but we're seeing spending sort of slow down, as we've expected, and and yet the consumer probably has remained a bit more resilient than people might have expected, especially because sentiment, uh, which bottomed out a, a few months ago, uh, has been pretty low by historic standards. And so it's it's an interesting environment where the consumer, generally speaking, isn't feeling great. I'm sure people, when they do the surveys, among other things, the consumers are probably focused on inflation and worries about jobs and things like that. But you know, the bottom line is, with all that said, they're still spending at a reasonable pace. On the business side, we're seeing uh, metrics like industrial production, factory orders, sentiment of small businesses, things signaling a slowdown, signaling um, less activity, and that's led to a decline in profits as things like inflation goes up, costs go up, and that typically uh, foretells a decline in, in capital expenditure spending, which is sort of the way that businesses continue to grow. And so long story short, we're seeing a slowdown on the business side, and that has everyone focus, as we've talked about, on the slowdown in the economy. But I will say, you know, as, as it has been widely reported, the uh, U.S. economy has remained more positive and more resilient in the first half of 2023 than everybody was forecasting. And so what's happening is everybody has these sort of negative forecasts. Could be a recession, might not be but everybody's not letting go of them. They're just pushing them out further into the future. So as we watch everybody uh, produce their forecasts, and you know, think of it as people are typically will forecast quarterly GDP. The consensus view, for example, uh, just to give the numbers, that cor- first quarter in 23 GDP was up 1.3, the second quarter estimate up 0.6, but then the consensus view for the third and fourth quarter are negative 0.5 and negative 0.4 respectively and so you know long story short it's um expect we're expecting a slowdown but it isn't quite happening to the level that people have been expecting now we've seen a lot going on in uh in politics and geopolitics and so we know that we had the debt ceiling crisis that we got through in terms of there being finally a negotiated deal between really the republicans and the administration uh, and that, that resolved the debt ceiling issues uh, until uh, after the next presidential election, which is a typical pattern. We know, for example, that U.S.-China relations remain highly competitive and a bit strained. And as both countries try to work to figure out how to, how to um, kind of exist together, especially with China being uh, you know, very fixated on being more dominant and more competitive in the global uh, macroeconomic environment, and um, so that's something that's in focus. And, and when we zoom in to Washington, D.C., this is really a great work by Brian Gardner, our chief Washington policy strategist. There are a number of things uh, that, that he's looking at and looking for in the, in the second half. 
Um, I, I'll give you just a few. I got the potential for a government shutdown that really relates to, you know, getting a budget uh, done, all that kind of thing. Um, you know, a, a question as to how much uh, the U.S. will support Ukraine uh, in its war with Russia. Um, there's, you know, focus on maybe new regulation that um, will require a, sort of a, a government review of investments being made in China. Uh, the Supreme Court's going to take up the student loan forgiveness plan from the Biden administration. Uh, there's probably new banking regulation. Uh, there may be some additional focus on cryptocurrency, on digital currencies. And then there is this sort of general uh, focus on uh, with mergers and acquisitions on uh, not uh, really allowing uh, large companies um, to... Uh, to gobble up other com companies uh, if it creates antitrust issues. And so there, there's just a lot of things in focus in D.C., uh, and many of them have an effect on the economy and the market as we look forward. Now, it is the middle of the year, so it's the end of June as I'm recording this, close to the end of June. And we're calling the, at the beginning of the year, we, um, we published our outlook. We've talked a lot about signposts, uh, and we haven't hit, all of them yet, but we've hit some or gotten in good direction. So think of things like uh, the Fed and the market becoming more aligned with the forecast of the future that has happened. We think we might have seen a trough in consumer confidence. Uh, China reopened its economy. We talk, we've talked about shelter costs stabilizing. We're starting to see that. We w we've talked about the labor market moving closer to equilibrium and uh, sort of wage growth slowing. And that's happening, but probably not to the pace we'd like to see. Um, and then, you know, essentially waiting for company earnings to get a little better. And that, you know, it's at best early days for that. Finally, of course, we love to see diplomatic progress in different hotspots around the world, most notably uh, the, the Russia uh, invasion and the war in Ukraine. Now, another thing we did was to uh, forecast some things that we would think for the year. And we just wanted to kind of do a check-in mid-year as to where things are. So we recall that we've talked about U.S. GDP growth being close to 0%, but for the first half of the year, it, it annualizes at 1.3%. So we, like most, sort of underestimated uh, GDP growth. Now, if we see a turn negative, we could end up kind of close to what we forecast, but perhaps not. Uh, core inflation, we expect at, by the end of the year to, to cool down to between 35 and 3.75% as defined by core PCE. Right now, it's 4.7%, so there's a ways to go. Fed funds, we anticipated a certain number of hikes, and the Fed's done one more than that so far. So we underestimated Fed activity. And the market has is a bit more resilient. We had a target for the end of the year of 4,000 on the S&P, and as, as this has been published, my notes for this discussion, we're at about 43.73. So uh, a good amount above our, our year-end target. And that doesn't mean we think it's going to move back down, but we also acknowledge that it could, right? And so we want to be mindful of that. Our 10-year forecast uh, was for it to range between three and a quarter and three and three quarters, and it's kind of done that. Um, right now it's at 373, the high end of that. Market Pulse are publications that we issue when the S&P closes down or up 2% or more on a given day. And last year we did uh, a ton of them, I want to say like 50 or something, uh, we forecasted 25 this year, but we've actually only done two. So interestingly, 
the market has been relatively less volatile than certainly last year and certainly what we were expecting so far. Now, that could kick up, kick up obviously, and we could see more in the second half. Anyway, then finally, uh, bond spreads, so investment grade and high-yield bond spreads, which is a, me- a metric, uh, the amount of money you get paid to, er- to own something um, with some credit risk, either on the investment grade or the below investment grade side. And in the investment grade side, we saw a range of 100 to 150. The number is actually currently at 131. And then high yield at 450 to 500. It's actually a little less than that right now. It's at 409. So uh, again, you know, we're sort of doing okay, but things lean more positive than we were expecting at the beginning of the year. Now, the markets have been interesting, and we've talked in the last episode about the market being narrow, where some bigger uh, tech companies were really driving the positive return of the S&P. So if you think about it, for example, year-to-date, the S&P is up 15.1%. But when we look at um, an equal-weighted index that's taking every stock and treating it the same, it's only up 4.4%. So what that's saying is some of the bigger companies, and we happen to know by analyzing it's the bigger tech companies that have sort of driven that higher return. Uh, But the good news is that we've seen the market broaden out, meaning that um, really in the month of June, uh, the the typical stock is modestly outperforming uh, uh, some of the bigger companies. And so the market has just in general broadened out, which is a good thing. That's a healthy thing. Uh, now, with that and, and everything that's going on, I mentioned that, um, that S&P level. What's interesting about that is, you know, you can take a look. One can take a look in a fairly simplistic way at the consensus view of earnings for the S&P 500 in this case uh, for the full year. And then it happens to be at 220. And then that, that index level we talked about. And essentially what you uh, get to is a a P.E. ratio of about 20 times. So the market's valued at about 20 times the expected 2023 earnings. And that's kind of an elevated P.E. ratio. That's higher than is typical. But one thing we want to be mindful of is the market is very forward-looking. So we also kind of crunch the numbers for the outlook for, for next year. And the consensus view for earnings next year is at 245 taking that same level and you get to a P-E ratio of about 18. Still a little bit elevated, but not quite as high as, uh, as if we use uh, kind of this year's uh, earnings. So long story short, I would say that the market is not quote-unquote cheap. It's, it's somewhere between fair and a little bit richly valued. But that happens sometimes as, as we head into a recovery and it's almost like the environment and earnings and things like that catch up with the investor's view of stocks. So we'll, we'll be mindful of that. In any event, as it relates to um, uh, investment opportunities, fixed income continues to uh, present a, a good opportunity in the sense of yields being elevated compared to they were, uh, let's say, at the beginning of, of last year. Um, and so again, just whether it's, you know, uh, treasuries, municipals, uh, or other categories or sectors like asset-backed securities, mortgage-backed securities, uh, or below investment grade bonds. Each of those categories are presenting pretty attractive yields. And so there is good work to do in terms of deciding as an investor, hey, do I need the tax favored treatment of municipals? Or if I'm investing, let's say, for an IRA or a family foundation I can uh, that, that doesn't pay taxes, I can 
essentially invest in the taxable bond market and find you know good good opportunities there. Um, now we do a lot of valuation work, kind of looking both within and 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 uh, the styles in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And I would just say, kind of back to what I was commenting about, just the general level of the market in the U.S. is a little bit more richly valued than um, than it, it typically is, and um, and so what that tells us is, is hey, as we're investing. We do tend to invest globally, like we do allocate some money outside the U.S. to Europe, Japan, and even sometimes emerging markets, including China. And the bottom line is those markets outside the U.S. are just a little bit more attractively valued. Now, I do want to take the opportunity briefly to comment on a report that came out um, that we uh, uh, that we published and it really relates to our longer-term investment themes. Um, and so we've identified through the work that we do five themes that we're tracking, and it really does inform so much of our macroeconomic work as well as our investment uh, management work and investment guidance. Um, those themes are the fourth industrial revolution, the idea that technology is breaking down boundaries between the physical, digital, and biological world. AI, for example, artificial intelligence has been in the news, and that's a capability, for example, that sort of, sort of falls under fourth industrial revolution, but it gets propagated out to other activities and is a touching other kinds of businesses. Uh, securing strategic resources is a really good example of that. This is where companies and governments are prioritizing both development and protection of critical industries, resources, and services. And here we've got, you know, uh, food and water, uh, sort of the management of carbon exposure, which relates to renewable energy. Uh, but take, for example, the idea of using AI for precision farming. That would be a good example of how those two themes might interact. Shifting, demogra shifting demographics gets into how the population is evolving and how to think about that. We tend to want to forecast well, how are different generations sh being shaped as we move through time. And so, for example, something as uh, obvious and, and interesting as an aging productive population, um, what that means, it might have an influence on health and how healthcare is delivered. It may have an influence on productivity and where people are working or not. So that's a that's a, an important theme for us. And the next one is the new consumer. So the idea that over time there's a, an evolution of the preferences that consumers have and, and behaviors that are shifting, and and that you know things like uh, currency becoming ever more digital um, is uh, is a really good example. And um, and so just lots of uh, opportunity, I guess, as it relates to the new consumer. And then finally, a little bit related to that idea of the U.S. and China being locked into competition. That's true between countries and regions. It's true between companies. And, and our observation in this theme is really the idea that, generally speaking, when people are competitive, they get stronger, they get better. And that's ultimately good for uh, macroeconomic uh, environments and for, uh, for investments. So uh, I want to just close by reminding folks that... Um, that you can check out our work, this episode, um, this series, um, a video that uh, we produce with this series uh, on stiefelinsights.com. So we really invite you to check out that 
website and it really contains the vast majority of our work and, and hopefully it's it's productive and just know as we make our way through the second half of the year we're going to be watching those guideposts we're going to be watching various data that comes out very importantly on inflation and uh, and then the influence that that might have on fed policy rates etc so thank you very very much for uh, hanging out for this episode and we'll catch you next month. Thanks for listening to Stiefel's Investment Strategy Brief. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to automatically receive each month's podcast in your feed.